inside of some church Bibles. Verse 7. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me, and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought tragedy upon, also upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Cassie. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful part of God's word that we look at this morning. Let's ask for his help as we do. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for approaching us, uh, principally in your Lord Jesus and your spirit, uh, that points us to him. And Father, thank you for our, your word. Thank you for this part of your word, uh, for what we see of you, for what we see of your world. Uh, Father, for how we have shown that he knew his life. Uh, Father, we ask for your help as we read it together now. Pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, friends, I want to uh, begin by asking you a question. The question is this. Uh, I wonder, uh, what's the worst advice 
uh, that you've ever been given. Um, the worst suggestion you've ever received. Um, you know, maybe it was uh, financial. Uh, you were told to uh, invest when you really should be divesting. Um, Maybe it was at school for some of you, when you were told to study this, it'll definitely be on the exam and you you really should have been studying that because that was on the exam. Or or perhaps, uh, like me, it was in the area of your most uh, treasured relationship. You see, it was 1996, uh, I was 22 and had just started dating my now wife, Erica, uh, when a friend of my brother's uh, took me aside on a day that Erica was with us, although aside from her now, and do you know what advice he gave? In all seriousness, like he was doing me a favour, he said to me, you know, Pete, I reckon you can do better. (laughs) Referring to my now darling wife, apparently completely oblivious to the mortal danger he was putting himself in at that moment, he said to me, you know, Pete, I reckon you can do better. Now, if you don't know my Erica, I'm sorry, this might not work as well, but if you do, then you will know how spectacularly moronic that advice was. Friends, aside from walking away from Jesus... The worst mistake I could ever make in my life is to walk away from Erica. Aside from knowing my God in Jesus, the best thing that I have going for me in my life is knowing Erica. And friends, I've got to tell you, I know I'm not alone in thinking that. As part of my job I get to visit many churches and many of them know both me and Erica and I can tell you on the days that I come alone without Erica... I can literally see them looking over my shoulder. Erica, not with you, they say, hopefully. Uh, No, no, not today. Oh, that's a shame, they say. Yes, I play it is. And now it's awkward, thank you. But, But I don't mind why, because to be honest, I'd say it too. Aside from God, she's the best thing that's ever happened to me. And yet there was my friend's, my brother's friend's advice. You know, Pete, I reckon you can do better. It's the dumbest thing that I've ever been told. And the reason I tell you that this morning is, apart from the obvious romantic value, she's in kids' church, please make sure you pass this introduction on to her. The, the reason I tell you is, is because it occurs to me that with respect to God, that's the same ridiculous advice that you and I have been getting since the moment of our birth. That's the same life-destroying suggestion the devil has been making ever since the garden. Do you remember? You know Adam? You know Eve? I reckon you can do better. You can do better than him. There's more to life than him. Friends, it's the same life-robbing message that our world announces every day. In the TV we watch, in the neighbours we love, in the constant subtle suggestion that there's more, well, more fun, more freedom, more life in a life without God. There was, there was a Christmas last year that the American atheist put up this great big billboard and what was on it? It was a big smiling Santa 
a big cheerful slogan. It just said, go ahead, skip church. Well, which of course they mean, go ahead, skip God. You'll be so much better for it. So you know, Pete, I reckon you can do better. Better than God. Better than him. As I want to suggest, the tragedy is, of course, that in a world that so massively underestimates God, both who he is and what he gives, I think even we are tempted to believe that. And I know that's hard to believe, singing in church, singing the songs we sing, but when we leave here, I think we're tempted to believe it. Now, as we peer over the fence, as we look over our shoulder, then we wonder, don't we? Even if only quietly to ourselves or just in our inner uh, envy or just in our, our quiet doubts, are they right? Do they do better without God? Is life really life when it's lived without him? Well, as we come to 1 Kings chapter 17 today, if you don't have it open, open up 1 Kings 17 today, I want to say we hear the answer to that question about as clearly as anywhere in the Bible. We see how, well, spectacularly moronic that advice is. You see, as we come to the part of the Bible here, 1 Kings 17, we're parachuted into a world just like ours, a world where God's people are being asked the same question. Can you do better without God? Can you have life without him? See, in our passage here, a new king has just come to the throne in Israel's northern kingdom just, just 60 years earlier. Uh, the kingdom of God was divided into Judah in the south, Israel in the north. And in the north, as we come to our passage, uh, that's where we find ourselves, a new king takes the throne. And, and a new way of life, if you like, a new way to life is being offered to the people. Pick it up there, chapter 16, chapter 16, verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. And what was Ahab like? What was literally his claim to fame? Verse 30, Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. And and by the way, if you ever get a chance to read the story up to this, you know that is really, really saying something. Verse 31, he not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of, and listen, Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple, a temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. See, four things you need to know about Ahab, and each is a consequence of the next. The first is his evil. The second, his wife. The third is his God and the fourth is that he set his God against the God of the Bible. That he offered his God in his place. Now let me tell you about Ahab's God. It's important for what comes next. His name was Baal. Just in case you missed it in the reading, you really weren't supposed to. And Baal, you see, was a fertility God. He was the God who rode on the storm the God who sent the rain. Baal promised you fruitfulness in your your fields, your flocks, your family. Like like so many gods of our day, Baal promised life here and now in every way you wanted it. From a life of sexual freedom in the temple prostitution 
to a life of material prosperity if you only bowed to him? And the question, of course, was, could he give it in a way that God won't and can't? Could he give you life? And I suppose in the day the answer seemed obvious. See, no doubt that the media applauded the new progressive age and the comedians mocked the, the, the kind of prudes that got in the way. And I'm sure the schools were filled with the, this new godless freedom. And, but it soon became clear, as eventually it always becomes clear, they were wrong. You see, what Ahab had done, whether he realised it or not, was lay a direct challenge to the godness of God. A direct challenge to the goodness of God and to his exclusive ability to give us life. There, chapter 17, verse 1, you see God accepts the challenge. Verse 1. Now Elijah, the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. And, and, and you might be interested to know if you didn't already, that this is the very first time we ever hear of Elijah. That prophet that the, the rest of the Bible makes so much of. That John the Baptist would come, sort of copying self upon him as he, as he prepared the way for Jesus. That one who'll, who'll stand on the mountain with Jesus as he is glorified. Here's the first time we meet him. And I wonder, do you notice, it's with almost no introduction. No information. He just appears and almost the only thing we know about him is his, well, his name. And what does that name mean? Eli, Yah. The Lord is my God. The Lord is the God. And he alone gives life. And then to prove it, as effortlessly as you like, like you and I, as we just finish off in the shower, this God turns off the rain. He takes away the rain from this supposed rain God. See, chapter 17, verse 1, in terrible judgment on Baal and on judgment on those who follow him, God says, if you like, rain, rain, go away. And then he does something even worse. In, in, in fact, the worst thing that any person can ever do to another, and what's that? He says, prophet, prophet, go away. He takes away his life-giving word. The very thing he has just promised would end the awful drought. The very thing he always uses to give life to his world and his people. Moses had said, Jesus repeats, man does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God and here God sends that word away. Romans 10, Paul asks, but how can they call on him they have not believed in? How can they believe unless they hear? How can they hear without a preacher? And here God sends that preacher away. God says, prophet, prophet, do you see? Go away, verse 2. Show them what life is like without me and my word. 
And Elijah, let me show you the life I and only I have to give. And so Elijah goes. You see in the next verses, Elijah goes first to the Kerith Ravine and the ravens commanded by God and then to Zarephath in Sidon and the widow commanded by God. And I wonder as it was read, did you notice on each occasion, using almost exactly the same words, and that's no accident there from verse 3 and then again from verse 9, first God gives a command, a command that, that stretches faith. And then God makes a promise that trusting him is worth it. And then God keeps his promise as he always does. See, first in the ravine with the ravens and the meat and and then on to Sidon with the widow and the bread. First God gives a command, a command that stretches faith and then God makes a promise that trusting him is worth it and then God keeps his promise as he always does. And of course, friends, that's what this God always does. He never ever tells us jump without adding that he'll catch us. He never lets us fall without holding out his arms. Whenever he says go, he always adds I'm with you. I am with you always to the end of the age. And friends, when he says it, he does it. When he promises life, he always gives it. You see, that's what Elijah goes on to discover, doesn't he? First, through the unlikely unclean raven that God directs by his word bringing the meat presumably Elijah thoroughly washed, thoroughly cooked and then ate and then the poor broken widow in the very backyard of Baal have a look down verse 8 then the word of the Lord came to him, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon, stay there Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. See, before we go on, I remember, do you remember where Jezebel was from? It was back there in chapter 16, verse 31. Do you see chapter 16, verse 31? Where was Jezebel from? Where, from where did she bring her Baal? From Sidon. The very place where now Elijah is sent. See, friends, I think it's almost like God is trying to prove a point. Of course he is. And he does. God sends Elijah to the very last place that he should be able to give you life. And even more, to the very last person that he should be able to use to give you life. After Did you see who he sent him to? To a poverty-ridden widow standing on the doorstep of death. It would be like God saying to us, Arise and go to Aleppo. For I have commanded a Syrian refugee to feed you there. Arrive and arise and go to Manus Island. For I have commanded an Afghani asylum seeker to feed you there. Arise and go to Baalsville. For I have directed the most needy person in your world. Do you see there verse 12? Look at verse 12. As surely as the Lord your God lives, he replied, I don't have any bread. Let me a handful of flour and a jar and a a little olive oil in a jug. <clears throat> I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Arise and go to Barsville. For I have directed the most needy person in your world to supply your needs. And of course you notice there for a moment the widow balks as well you might. See there again verse 12. 
But then generously, beautifully, rather than simply casting her off and finding another widow, if you like, God says, verse 13, just as he so often says to his people, just as we heard in the kids' talk, he said to the angels, to the shepherds, do not fear. Just give me what you have and I'll give you what you need. Indeed, give me all you have and I'll give you all you need. And that's what she does and that's what he does. Through the jug and the jar, God gives life to those who trust his word. Just like through the raven in the ravine, God gave life to him who trusted his word. God gives life to those who follow his word. And why? Because that's what God always does. No matter the opposition, even Jezebel bad, no matter the alternatives, even bilishly beautiful, no matter how unlikely it seems that he could come through with what he promises to you, God alone gives life by his word. You cannot do better than him. Just this week I read an online essay from a woman uh, lamenting how she once sought life in sex. Now, she didn't phrase it that way exactly, but that was basically her point. She spoke about the casual hookups she sought, the no strings attached. She, she spoke about what they promised, but what they ultimately gave. She spoke about the lie of the power and then the truth of the pain. She told her, actually, it wasn't just her experience, but the statistics bear it out. Sex that way is scarring sex. And yet, all over our TVs, where is true life found? It's in that kind of sex. And if it's not in sex, it's in travel. Go and see the world, there you'll find life. Or it's in money, just get enough money, then you'll be safe in life. Or it's in your superation, your superannuation, invest for the future, there you'll find life. Or it's in your stuff, or it's in your own self-improvement, or your own self-fulfilment. But just as he said to their Baal, so God says also to ours, no. Stop. The life you want, the life you need, is not, will not, cannot be found in them. It's in me and my word. But friends, I think if we're honest, and again, I know it's hard to hear, we sing the songs, but when we leave this room, I think if we're honest, we say, are you sure, God? Can I trust you, God? I mean, after all, really, God, Ravens? Really, God, Sidon? Really, God, living for you in a world that doesn't? Loving like you, even our enemies, no matter the cost, trusting you with all that I have, my time, my energy, my effort, my money? Yes, God says, I alone give life by my words. You can't do better than me. And of course, for those of us in the room who know him well, we know that that's true. 
It reminds me of what Peter will say to Jesus. Do you remember in John chapter 6 where he says so famously, Lord, where else have we to go when you alone have the words of eternal life? Where else have we to go in this life when you alone have words of eternal life? Where else have we to go even beyond this life? Both when life here and now is good and even when life, life goes away, which is exactly what happens in chapter 17, verse 17. Have a look. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. You know, they say at the time this was written, um, just as it is today really, there are a whole raft of gods you could choose from. Um, gods that competed for your attention and, and in fact uh, competed against one another. And one of those gods was Mot, the god of death. The god who even Baal could not defeat. So even for Baal with his power in the storm, and his promise of prosperity, even he, sooner or later, every year, had to bow to Mot. With spring he would rise and give life again. With summer he would rule and give what you needed. But of course, always autumn came. Always winter came. Always death came. And as everyone knows, always death Wins. Death always laughs in the end at whatever you look to to give you life. So whatever you cling to to give you life, sooner or later you have to get let go or sooner or later, more to the point, sooner or later it drags you down. See, don't get me wrong, God, it was wonderful the way you rescued Elijah. And I must say it was wonderful the way you rescued the widow when death was right at the door when the jaws of death were were almost shut. But surely it's a whole other story when those jaws of death are already closed, when the person you love is inside the box. As this time last year, almost to the day, I stood in the church and we said goodbye to Grandma. As we shed our final tears and her body went up in flames, surely then, God, even for you the game is over. Surely in the end death beats life. See, right from the beginning of this chapter, the question this chapter has been asking is, who can give us life? And now at last the question is made explicit. And so too is God's answer. From the lips of this widow who is given back her son. Verse 23. Elijah picked up the child, carried him down into the room, into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Look, Your son is alive. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you're a man of God and that the word of the Lord on your mouth is true. 
In other words, now I know who gives life and now I know how he gives it even beyond the grave. Friends, we live in a world that constantly tells us, you know Pete, you know John, you know Cassie, you know Margaret, you, you can do better. I mean, you can do better than, you know, this. I mean, don't you know what they're doing out there? You can do better than this. You can, you can do better than him. 1 Kings 17 was written to show us that you really, really can't. You cannot do better than the God we meet here. You cannot do better than the God we meet in Jesus who gave his life to give us life. You cannot do better than the God who said, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Who says, whoever hears these words of mine and acts on them and trusts them and believes them and does them, no matter the alternatives, even Jezebel bad, and they may well come in our country, no matter the alternatives, even barlishly good, as the Tonys are often dressed up to look. No matter how unlikely it seems that God can give you what you want and what you need, whoever hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man and a wise woman who built his house on the rock. And so, friends, may that be us. May we see the advice of the devil and our world as moronic as it is. May we never walk away from our first love, our true love, from the one who loved us first. God alone gives life by his word. You cannot do better than him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much that you tell us what we need to hear and you tell us what we long to hear. Our Father, we thank you that in you and you alone is true and lasting and fulfilling life. Our Father, please, would you please help us to deny the claims of the world that we can somehow do better than you, that there's more to life than knowing you, that we're freer if we live without you. Help us see that as the nonsense that it is. We pray that it will be true for us now. We pray it will be true as we leave here today and go into our week. Our Father, we're so grateful for you, for the life we have in the Lord Jesus, your word to us about him. Please help us hear it. Please help us heed it. Please give us life. Amen.